Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance, the podcast where we hear from our favorite crypto founders. This week, we have on Michael Shalov, the founder of Fireblocks. We've been really excited to bring him on. We've actually had him on about two years ago on our second podcast ever, but we're really excited to bring him on and just chat about the Fireblocks story really since inception. I expect most listeners to this pod are really familiar with Fireblocks as users, as customers, and have interacted with it at some point. And it's also a company that we at Reverie have been intimately familiar with. Carl was an early user and design partner while he was at Genesis. And Larry was also an investor in Firebox. So you'll hear from Carl and Larry today. They'll really be driving this discussion and just having a conversation with Michael, who they've really known for quite a long time. In this episode, we're going to cover what Firebox does, how they got to the scale and success that they are at today, and the journey along the way. We're also going to go through the nitty gritty of finding product market fit, scaling a crypto company, and other learnings and takeaways along the way. So Michael, to kick things off, I think most listeners are familiar with Fireblocks, but I find it's always helpful to hear founders explain their company in their own words. So we'd love to hear like, what is Fireblocks today in like a minute or two? What are you guys focused on? Sounds good. First of all, great to be here. There are Carl and Larry. I think it will be a really nice episode here. So when we think about Fireblocks, at least like how we currently operate and create the product that evolved over the last five years since we started the company, we see ourselves as a platform that provides the critical elements for every type of business that actually working in digital assets, right? So it's, it's a set of services that I think at the base of the platform, we still have the entire wallet infrastructure and key management technology. On top of that, we have the Fireblocks network that I think it's one of the unique things that we've built, which allows folks in the crypto space and the digital asset space to settle uh, securely with one another. And then we sort of expanded it to a few additional services such as tokenization, so the ability to create and issue assets, uh, the payment engine that allows people to create different flows with stable coins in terms of using them for payment use cases. And last but not least, the ability to interact with Web3 applications, so whether it's DeFi or NFTs and so on. So it's really a cybersecurity platform and an operational platform that allows any business to securely interact with the different blockchain protocols and both secure and abstracts their operations. I remember when we were first introduced, Michael, either Yuri, who was the CISO at Genesis at the time, or someone else. I don't remember exactly now. It's been years ago. But they basically said, hey, Larry, you got to talk to this guy. He's like a repeat founder and, you know, in 2018, 2019. Mostly first-time founders in crypto. Even today, it's mostly first-time founders. But you had some experience. You had previously sold the company. You've done the founder thing before. But I don't know if I've asked you, like, how did you find crypto in the first place? Like, why was Fireblocks the company you ended up founding when you did it? Yeah, so it was somewhat by accident. I wasn't specifically in the crypto space before Fireblocks. I actually spent most of my career in cybersecurity. And then previous company got acquired by a company called Checkpoint that is one of the three leaders in the firewall and network security market. And the way we ended up building Fireblocks is actually through multiple things that happen at the same time. The first one is that as part of Checkpoint, my team did an investigation on a breach that happened in South Korea where effectively like the North Korean hackers, they hacked four exchanges over there and they stole back in 2017, $200 million worth of Bitcoin. Bitcoin was there back then on the $1,000, right? So you can multiply it, I think, by 34 or something like that. So basically a lot of money. And it was a very sophisticated hack, which triggered me to look much deeper into what's going on in this space. So that was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was that one of my co-founders, Dan, he was working for a blockchain company, so he was familiar with this space. And then we started to dig into different applications of blockchain and crypto rails in general. And I think that there was a realization that you're looking at technology that, I guess, at the minimum is going to replatform the way that finance or financial applications are working. So 
that's sort of like how we start going down the rabbit hole. And I think that maybe just kind of to follow on why we decided that this is an interesting and exciting idea, as I would say, a second time entrepreneur, one of the things that you learn that in order to be successful, you actually need to understand the customer quite well. I mean, it does help you if you're familiar with the space and so on. But honestly, what helps you way more is the ability to just to interact with clients and ask them what they need and be patient and try to analyze their requirements. So we sort of embarked on this journey to talk with as many back in the day. It was funds and exchanges and so on. So Carl and Uri back in Genesis were, I think, one of our first conversations, but definitely not the only one. We talked with Kraken, we talked with Galaxy, we talked with a bunch of other folks. And then the use cases and the problems and specifically the gaps that were in the market back in 2017, early 2018, started to become very clear. And I'm not sure like we appreciate how big it can become, but at the minimum, what we were hearing is a fairly acute pain point without really good solution in the market. At what point did MPC come into the picture? Fireblocks is obviously known for revolutionizing the adoption of MPC, which for listener who's not aware is multi-party computation, which kind of Fireblocks uses for key management. Michael, maybe you can give us a quick intro or a very brief mention of MPC as well. But did you discover MPC and realize it was a solution for crypto and that was kind of your entry point? Or did you first come into crypto and then come across MPC and realize, aha, this is what I'm going to use? To build a product yeah so i think like yeah there is a story and there is the reality and to be fair the reality is much more of the second description of what you're bringing up so we were not the one that found mpc to be fair in the original concept of our solution we weren't even sure that we are going to build a wallet. And there was a question if we should just piggyback and integrate on other wallets or should we actually build a wallet. What was quite clear was the cybersecurity properties, right, of that wallet and specifically the requirement to uh, disintermediate uh, the single point of failure that was associated with a private key at that point in time. And when we looked at the standard solutions that were available back then, uh, one of them was clearly like the Bitcoin multisig solution. And the second option was essentially a smart contract-based wallet that you know, I think today people like to call it account obstruction, but it's not completely new concept. Both of them looked quite problematic, right? So multisig, there were like a bunch of issues with scaling it, how much it costs, the fact that it doesn't work across different protocols or work in a different way across different protocols, and the fact that if you truly want to use multi-sig in an enterprise environment where users come and go, you need to rekey the wallet, it looked like fairly problematic. In terms of smart contract-based wallets, Back in the days, back in 2017-18, we were just post the parity hack that was a pretty devastating hack. And I think there was some consensus that it will be quite difficult to use smart contracts to secure a large AUM. I think people didn't really trust it that much. And there was this really new and nascent technology that was called MPC. The company that was most well-known for it was a company called Unbound Technology that was an Israeli company. And there were a few folks over there that we served directly. And we went to meet with them. There were certain gaps that we didn't really like in terms of the way that they were implementing it. More on, I think, like the actual implementation, the theoretical idea even. And there was also like basically a new paper that came from two leading cryptographers, Stephen Golfer. I think people are now familiar with from his work with Arbitrum and Rosario Gennaro, and they basically outlined the first paper for MPC. And I think that we had a lot of questions, to be honest, like internally debating if it will work or not. But my other co-founder, Pavel, who is our basically CDO and VP R&D, he kind of insisted that 
if we really want to own the product, we cannot use the unbound implementation and we need to own that stack and we need to develop it. I personally, by the way, had a lot of questions if it's actually feasible, but they convinced me that we should go for it. And interestingly enough, after I think four or five months, we had a product that was working quite well. So I wouldn't say like we invented it, but we were definitely one of the very early adopters around MPC. And then I think we were quite lucky in terms of bringing in the required talents to really create the next set of breakthroughs in terms of MPC with the MPC CMP and MPC CMP GG, which are the current protocols that are being used across the industry. But I do want to make sure that we give the credit to the right people in terms of coming up with the idea and the innovation in the first place. And I think like the initial breakthrough of discovering the light bulb. I think in crypto, what you see a lot of the times is kind of the inverse of this, where someone's like, well, we found this new technology. It's kind of an R&D stage, but it's new. And then now we're going to figure out a use case for what this thing could be used for versus you guys sounds like you had a use case in mind, which is there's this private key stuff that is super problematic. And we're going to go find a technology that actually solves that problem. And that's kind of how you stumbled on MPC. It's a really intuitive way of building product and going to market. But in crypto, it seems like people start the opposite, start with technology and then try to find what it's useful for. Yeah, I would agree about everything you just said. And rightfully so. I think it is somewhat of a frontier technology. And I think that there is some interesting mixture of entrepreneurs and innovators in crypto that somehow creates more of those situations where you have startups that build technology and then they're trying to figure out what is the use case or they build a technology that the use case is not scalable or it's not a strategic use case. But I think it also happens in other areas. I'm not sure that crypto is completely unique with that fact. And I guess to double click on MPC and kind of the commercialization of it in a little bit more depth, because this is something we talked a lot about at Reverie is in 2018, 2019, there was quite a few MPC companies, right? Fireblocks was and I remember this because a bunch of them were pitching us at DCG. And Fireblocks was just one of them. You mentioned Unbound, but there's a few others. And the lesson I got away from that whole period and would love to chat with you about is the key is to take that technology to find the use case, which you guys did, but also to figure out the customer workflows and to mold the product in a way that fits what the customers are actually doing, right? What problems they need solved. Whereas I think a lot of the other NPC providers they knew what the technology used for, right? They couldn't really productize it. They couldn't really commercialize it in a way that was intuitive to customers. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because to me, Fireblocks, that's what you guys did better than anyone else in the market. Yeah, so probably there are different ways to look at it, but I'll give you guys my point of view. And it's probably an interesting exercise to go and ask the other folks. So when we started... I would say there were another three companies. Three out of the four were basically with an Israeli origin, right? But it was us, Unbound, uh, Curve, and Sepia, right? I think those were like the four companies that back in, say, 2018, 19, started to use MPC. One of the things that people forget is that it was actually quite challenging back then to convince people that MPC is secure. It was both very new and it was also quite of a complex idea because it relies on a very high-end math that, to be honest, like unless you have a PhD in cryptography, it's impossible to understand why it actually works, right? So it was an uphill battle to convince people that this is secure and legit technology. Now, what we did that was quite different from what the other folks have done back then was that I think Unbound and Sepior really focused on basically creating more of what you mentioned earlier, just like an SDK, telling people, look, you know, we have an SDK over here and you can apply this SDK to whatever you want. And specifically, 
crypto custody wallets was just one of the use cases that they were looking after. Funny enough, for example, for Unbound, they eventually ended up, both of them, by the way, both Sapir and Unbound, they eventually ended up doing only that because one of them got acquired by Coinbase and the other one got acquired by Blockdemon. But for the vast majority of their independent life, they were too generic and without a very narrow use case that they were going after. So clearly it was very difficult for them to create something that was like a consistent and scalable go-to-market motion, right? So there wasn't like what we call ideal customer profile or ICP that they would say, okay, we're going after this profile of clients and every time we meet that client, we know exactly what their pain point, we know exactly what to solve for, and we will be able to do it time after time after time with, let's say, 80% probability of winning the deal, right? Basically, they were spreading themselves too thin on too many pain points that some of them were painkillers, but some of them were definitely much more of a vitamins. Then if you look at Curve, that's actually like an interesting story because what they were doing is that they basically said, look, there is this legacy outdated player called BitGo, and we would just create like a better BitGo using this technology and we will roll with it. So that was basically their approach. And what they did was more or less copy, not only by the way, copy the product, but just basically change the engine into the MPC engine, but rather they even like hired some of the go-to-market people, for example, from uh, BitGo, right? And they sort of attempted to execute that strategy, which was, in theory, I think, a better strategy, of course, than the other two. The main gap that they had is that, look, you have basically two cars. They look exactly the same way. One of them has a newer technology in its engine, and now you're basically trying to go and convince people that this new technology is superior and as robust and better than something that was actually working for the last 10 years. And that simply takes time. I mean, it's kind of like, why not every person right now is buying an electric car? I mean, I personally own two Teslas, and I think that this is like the best thing in transportation that was invented. But most people still like, you know, buying gas cars because they have concerns that they will be stuck and they will run out of battery and all those things, right? So I think they basically run into some of those same challenges that it just took a lot of time to evangelize. Now, what we have done that was very different is that we kind of sidestep that entire discussion, but by actually focusing on what we saw as a very distinct use case that no one was covering. And that use case actually came through the Firebox network. So most people think about Firebox as a wallet, but the way that we were thinking about Firebox in our own mind was as I mentioned initially, like we're not really obsessed about the wallet. What we are obsessed is about solving this problem that people had in terms of moving assets from point to point between different trading counterparties. And that looked like a very messy process. And Carl can basically, you know, you can jump in here and tell your point of view. But I remember that one of the first times that I walked into the Genesis office and I saw Carl making those transfers using both BitGo and Ledgers, it looked to me like unreal, right? Like someone who is the head of operations of kind of a billion dollar asset manager or trading firm, they were doing something that they definitely didn't have a good tool to do it in a scalable way. And I think the core realization for us over there was that you actually need to think about from a network standpoint and how you tie all those things together and how do you solve for the specific use case that let's say Carl had at that time and you go from there. Now, to be fair, the downside of it is that it looks like a very small and niche market because keep in mind that in 2010, crypto was small and shrinking because of the bear market, the furious bear market that we were facing. On top of that, as a generic wallet provider, you would argue that every client, every institutional client in the space will need something like that. We narrowed down the customer profile even further because our initial product was mostly focused on the pain points of 
OTC desks, market makers, hedge funds, but it was not a product that looked like an exchange will use, just like the initial product. And by the way, the product that we were holding with for the first, I would say, almost 12 months until we started to expand the offering. And funny enough, I think that there were a lot of exchanges and other type of profiles that today we are kind of famous in servicing and they potentially actually the bigger chunk of our clients. But at that point in time, we would just go into meetings with them and after 15 minutes, we would tell them, look, we are not the tool that you need to have. You should probably go and talk with Curve or BitGo. You gave me some dramatic flashbacks there, Michael. I'm sitting here remembering the days of just trying to make non-Fireblox wallet solutions work when they couldn't really. So yeah, I definitely was grateful when you entered the room and when we were able to start working together and kind of developing this solution that really solved a lot of our problems. So there's quite a few things that you spoke about here that I'd love to kind of double click on. When we spoke a little while ago, I was asking you about how it was that you approached this mindset of really tapping into customers and ideal design partners early on in your product development. And you had mentioned to me a book called The Four Steps to Epiphany by Stephen Blank as kind of an inspiration. Is that something that you had read? Were you following some sort of playbook here at that point in time? Or did you figure it out throughout the development of the product? And by that, what I mean is, did you know that you were going to target a set of customers and basically create this very strict and productive feedback loop with them in order to develop a product and that really solves for their particular use cases and for their pain points? Absolutely. So usually when people ask me, what's my favorite book? I tell them four steps to epiphany and I tell them that this is my Bible. Actually, an interesting background. So the previous company that I had that got sold to Checkpoint was called Lacoon, but actually just before we started Lacoon, we had a different company that was called Blue Ridge. Funny enough, what it was trying to do is something that is similar probably to Filecoin. It was basically a distributed storage system that used kind of the free space on the hard drives in your computers to create distributed storage. I'm not going to get the full details of it, but we basically started that company in the wrong point in time with the wrong set of investors in the wrong location. And after, I would say, like three months of working on that project, it was quite clear to me that it's not going anywhere. And randomly, like a friend of mine called me and I was crying about our miseries with that startup. And he told me, hey, there is a list of books that I will share with you. I hope you read them. And I was like, no, I haven't read any books. And then he sent me the list. And I don't remember if it was the first book on the list or one of the first books on that list. But when I read that book, I was like, wow, this is like a step-by-step guide on how you're supposed to do it. So when we started the code, we more or less followed the steps that are outlined in Four Steps to Epiphany. And the thing that I said, like, you know, more or less, because actually you have the theory and then you have the reality. And there is always a gap between the theory and the reality. And I think this is where experience actually comes in because the first time that you try to execute against the theory, it works uh, okay. It doesn't work in the most perfect way that you can imagine because I think it's only clear to you like in a retrospect after the fact that certain things were indeed what you were reading about and potentially other things were actually other signals, right? So this is basically to say that I've already tried to follow it once with would say like reasonable success. And then when we started Fireblocks, I was quite obsessed about that we're going to follow it really step by step. I also had, I think, the experience of understanding like, you know, what's important, what's less important, I think, within those books. So this is, I think, for me, a foundational exercise in product development. And the reality is that a lot of the way that we expanding our platform at the moment, we are trying to basically follow the footsteps of that book because the way that I look at it is when we launching a new product, for example, recently we launched our non-custodial wallet solution, which is like an SDK. It's like you're developing a startup within a startup, right? So you almost need to follow 
the same footsteps. And I really urge a lot of my team to read and follow through this book. Again, we don't always do it in the most successful way, but I think that theory is critical. I feel like on the book side, there's these amazing business books written in the 1980s, 1990s. I mean, the Stephen Blank books, of course, but obviously the Clayton Christensen books that influenced how Steve Jobs built Apple, how Bill Gates built Microsoft, and these huge trillion-dollar companies. And for whatever reason, like when we speak to founders now, particularly younger founders, they kind of roll their eyes on these books, right? It's like, ah, this is the stuff MBAs read, Harvard MBAs read. Like It doesn't work that way, right? And it's like, well, actually, these books, even though they're old and they use terminology that is not hip today, they still have really practical wisdom, right? And it's a little bit intellectual at times, but when you apply it and you take that like real life practice and you put it together with the ideas and the playbooks those books have, something really special happens. And it's, it's always surprising to me how few people actually end up reading these books because there is a lot of playbooks there and you can really copy paste them and they work a lot of the times. Yeah, those books are, I think, critical. Or I wouldn't say they're critical. I'm sure that Mark Zuckerberg didn't read any of those books before he started Facebook, or at least like (laughs) that doesn't look like from the movie. So you probably can be successful randomly without reading them. But my view on all those things is that even if you have the experience and even if you have the intuition and you're doing all the right things, being familiar with the theory is not a bad thing because I think it does crystallize the ideas. It creates common terminology. It sort of like organizes things in your head. And I think like, you know, the example that I have just like even outside of the startup world is that just like with my background, I started programming in a very early age. And then actually my training as an engineer, as a software engineer, came in the army before I did my bachelor degree. After finishing the army, I was already at the peak of my programming skills. So I actually worked with a very high salary in startups and big corporates. And during that time, I also went to the university to do my computer science degree, which I didn't need to do that computer science degree for getting a job right? Or honestly, in theory, it didn't make me learn anything new that I didn't know before that. But I think learning all that theory that you learn in computer science, it's actually made me a much better back in the days engineer because it did organize a lot of those concepts that were extremely intuitive for me at that point in time in a different way. Okay, so you have a lot of this theoretical background now and kind of knowledge from the book that you've read from your previous startups and this experience, and you apply that to Fireblocks. And what that ends up looking like, at least in the very early days, is you bring on Genesis Trading and Galaxy Digital as very early design partners to kind of iterate and be thought partners for the product development stage. Could you maybe walk us through why those two? Did they fit criteria for you? Was there a particular reason why you kind of went after Genesis and Galaxy or did the market just lead you in that direction? Yeah, maybe we could start there and then we can explore how those relationships grew. Yeah. So what we saw in Genesis and Galaxy, and there were a few others that basically fell into that same category, whether it was Lockfills or Namis or GSR, right, that basically shortly followed that experience was that when I spent time with you, Carl, and when I spent time with Joe from Galaxy and Gordon from Lockfills and, and all those guys, there was like a very clear and consistent pain point that came across. Now, specifically, the reason why we thought that Genesis and Galaxy looked like the top candidates to actually work with and develop was mostly the partnership, I think, like with you and Joe, that we really found people on the other side that were willing to come and work with us. And they were like, okay, look, I have this problem. You solve this problem for me. 
I will make sure that I'm going to use your product. I'm going to provide you feedback on the product and I have the budget to pay you. And by the way, the last part is also quite important. I think that what you actually see a lot in this space is lack of either discipline around making sure that there is a business model at the early stages. And this is, I think, something that is both the magic and also the curse of crypto is that sometimes you have alternative business models that are non-orthodox, right? Like liquidity mining and things like that, that they don't necessarily indicate that there is a willingness to pay for that pain point. So I want to actually make sure that that point is quite clear because every one of the prospects or every discussion that we had at those early phases before we started working with you and with Galaxy, every person we asked, I'm like, okay, if we solve this for you, how much are you going to pay? And only after we understood that, you know, people are assigning a reasonable dollar amount for solving this, we knew that it's worthwhile working on it. And then the reality is that why specifically Genesis and Galaxy, I think it was a combination of people on the other side, uh, the brands that looked quite stable through that crypto winter, which turned out great for us because when the market turned, those were like the firms that everybody were looking at as an example. Both of you guys were based in New York, which made things convenient from just spending time together. But I would say this is, I think, the reasons why we managed to establish those relationships. And getting tactical now, because a lot of conversations we have with you know founders on the seed and pre-seed side, sometimes even Series A, they kind of understand, okay, like I need a big name customer as a pilot customer, build partner, whatever you want to call it. And then maybe they get a connection to that organization. Maybe it's the CEO, maybe it's the CTO, CISO. And then they're like, okay, what do I do now? Can you kind of unpack, once you get an intro, a warm introduction to a potential customer, how do you expand from there? Do you network with the whole organization, bring your team, bring their team? Like, Walk us through how to build an authentic relationship with someone you're going to build a product for. I think you need to build an authentic relationship, that's for sure. At the minimum with your first set of clients. There needs to be something there that is more than just a transactional relationship, but a true partnership. But just to be clear, it needs to be combined with some level of expertise around enterprise sales. And when I say enterprise, I mean, it's just like some sophistication of understand what you're doing, because you might be actually targeting SMBs or, and by the way, neither from a traditional definition standpoint, neither Genesis or Galaxy, they fall under the definition of a true enterprise, like an organization with 30,000 employees, right? They were like basically a small organization with a fairly concentrated wealth within them. But it was critical for us to understand who will be the stakeholders for buying our solution. And by the way, this is something that was never clear at the very beginning. And this is part of what you really need to understand at the first phases of kind of that product development and go to market. And again, speaking of books and theory, there is the theory behind how to conduct enterprise sales. I think it's like a very well understood and documented theory terms of having the economic buyer, the technical buyer, the influencer, and you need to basically map who are all those different people, right? So in this specific example, Carl was a, both our user and the key influencers. We had the CISO who was Yuri, that from that standpoint, the technical evaluator of the security aspects of it. And eventually we had Martin or Mike Morrow, that they were basically the buyer, right? And we also had the CFO over there. So I had to map basically all those relationships and make sure that we are able to justify to all of them why they should be doing business with us. And by the way, like the same type of people more or less were mapped within Galaxy. We had David Chway, who was the CISO over there, and he had to basically sign off on the solution and Joe, who was basically the head of operations and there was Julie, who was the COO. So in each one of those accounts, you really had to navigate all those relationships. And I would say that it is critical 
at the first phases to do this properly because both back in the days and probably even more today, people are not ecstatic about spending money on something new and unproven. So a lot of people will have a lot of objections on why you should be doing business with this new company. And they will also have ideas of why incumbent solutions, alternative solutions, things that they're familiar with might serve you better. And without making sure that you are able to navigate all those objections, I think it will be difficult to eventually bring the solution and implement it. I really like how you mapped the organization and to use your terminology, buyer, influencer, user, technical expert, because I think the mistake a lot of people make, and maybe you've seen this as well, is they'll get a connection to the CEO, the founder, and in their mind, they're like, well, I have the highest person in the organization on my side now, the deal's done. Well, in reality, the CEO is probably going to send them you the product to maybe the buyer or maybe the user, the technical expert, and they may not like you. And at the end of the day, the CEO is going to look at them to say, what do we do now? And getting buy-in from all of these disparate stakeholders is so important, right? And mapping them, but it's a step I think people sometimes intuitively forget about. And that sort of hustle and almost the technical ability to map the organization is so critical in the go-to-market motion for, for a B2B business. Yeah, I mean, I, I would even take it two steps farther. The first step is that your example about aligning only with the CEO, there is a reasonable scenario there that you will actually end up being a shelfware, right? That no one will use your software because, yeah, you were able to get the CEO to sign off and even sign the purchase order or whatever, but you didn't convince your user and you didn't basically convince the user that you're going to provide them value and you didn't create the sense of urgency for the user to implement your solution. The second thing, by the way, that I see quite often is that in this space specifically, but it also happens in other spaces and I have a lot of like funny stories on those uphill battles, is that you will actually convince the VC or the funding or basically like the investment part of the organization to invest in you before they actually bought the product or got in love in the product. And then you have an investment from someone that you hope to be your customer, but you didn't actually do any legwork inside of that organization to convince those people to use you. And you end up with trying to have the VC part convince the users to use this product, which usually don't end up really well. <laughs> okay, that's kind of like the other part. And by the way, I think that situation actually happened with both Genesis and Galaxy and a few other folks where they had peer investments or parallel investments in some of our competitors and they didn't actually have an investor in, in Firebox, and we were able to outperform or outdeliver the people that received those investments. And eventually, I think we had such a great partnership that they also put an investment in Fireblocks, which I think, by the way, both in the case of Genesis and the case of Galaxy really paid off. But I think that if I take it a bit outside, I think that there are a lot of people that kind of reverse the order. And I think when it comes to this type of strategic investment, I think that people need to really make sure that you first get in love and then you get married and not like you get married and then you try to figure out if you can get in love. It's such an important point. And as someone who was in those shoes, right, I was an investor strategic at, at DCG. I saw that happen firsthand where a lot of founders who didn't know better, they thought, hey, if we get money from DCG, all doors are open for Genesis, for Grayscale, for DCG, all these subsidiaries, we can get them as customers. But it doesn't work that way. Coinbase, same sort of thing, right? So when founders, whoever's listening, when you're pitching a strategic, that usually doesn't open any doors in and of itself. To Michael's point, you have to sell the actual users and the organization behind it and then potentially go to the strategic for money. Yeah, and by the way, I think the situation is far from being a unique situation in crypto. For example, in my previous company, our number one competitor got an investment from Samsung 
and eventually Samsung chose our solution to be implemented. And they were trying to fight that decision through the venture arm. And the CISO basically just told them like, no, like this is what was my decision. And I'm sorry that you guys did the investment without consulting with me. So yeah, I think that it's something that people should be aware of and familiar with, especially when they're dealing with strategics. That's why, again, I'll be careful because this is not like an advice that should be taken lightly or in all cases, but I think it's much better to take money from VCs like yourself, where I think it's much more of a economic or commercial VC investment and not necessarily like you promise them like something that is bigger, that is not just basically going to give you money and support you and so on. Kind of a wonky question going back to the four stakeholders within the organization. So let's say, because this is a question we get a lot, and I'm sure you've lived through this, but let's say you got the relationship with the technical expert and the user. And a lot of founders, what they struggle with is like, okay, I have these relationships, but I don't want to come off annoying, right? I don't want to constantly pester them. I want to come off as and be perceived as very hungry for their business. I want to be coming off as someone who is persistent, right? And is constantly going to listen to their needs. How do you strike that balance between being that annoying sort of person and more the persistent person who's just trying to build the best product for the client? It's a good question. I think it's probably a question for Carl. I will preface your answer by saying that in the early days of Fireblocks, when we were working together, the way that I remember it back in like 2018, 2019, you were in the office like once a week, maybe once a month, but I almost want to say once a week. It got to the point where Michael, you and Idan, maybe if he was in town, would show up and people would just know like, oh, those two, yeah, they're here to see Carl. Just let him in. And people just kind of, they almost thought that you worked at Genesis by the end of it. But from our perspective, you weren't bothering us because we felt like you were here to listen, to solve our problems. And you really conveyed that in a way that they made it feel like we were being heard and our problems were being solved for. And so it, it was a good investment of our time, basically. But would love to hear, yeah, like, I mean, to echo Larry's question, like, what was it like from your perspective? How did you allocate that time as well towards making sure that you kind of strengthen the feedback loop and were able to develop your product in the best way possible? I agree with you. My recollection is probably like twice a week, but probably the truth is somewhere in between. The key over there is really to be able to listen and deliver quickly and have a dialogue, right? I mean, I would assume and probably both don't fully remember what exactly happened there. It's not that we could have fulfilled all the requirements or requests that you have, and we were having a dialogue of what makes sense and how do we prioritize it. But I think we became sort of like partners, right? This is why they call design partner in terms of developing it, which you could appreciate our constraints, but we were really able to deliver of what we told you that we're going to do, and we were able to do it quickly or at least consistently in the timeframes that we more or less promised, right? So I think that there is nothing like perfect or purely accurate over there, but as long as there is a good alignment and a level of trust between those two parties and you are really working towards solving the pain points that the other person has and the other person trusts you that this is what you're doing, then you probably are not coming as annoying, right? I mean, at the end of the day, then what will be the difference between me coming once or twice a week to your office vis-a-vis -vis you hiring a bunch of engineers that will develop it internally. And unfortunately, or fortunately, every time that they have a question, they will just basically run across the room to your desk and will spend time with you to refine what exactly they're working on, right? So I think that this is probably the way to look at it. I went back, by the way, and found our old WhatsApp group that we had set up back in like 2018. And I actually want to, if anything, want to apologize to Idan because when I look back at it, I was messaging him several times a day with feature requests and bug reports and just sending my logs, basically spamming him at all times of the day. And we were far apart in terms of time differences. And I feel like he was still responding at all times. And so I can't imagine what that must have been like. But 
definitely the commitment was obvious. So you've created this partnership with Genesis Galaxy, and you've eventually managed to scale that into a few other customers. You named JSR, Dunamis, and some others. What was the next step to graduate the product from these early design partners to now, okay, we're ready, we can go out to the market and we feel comfortable in selling this to everybody? Was it gradual? Was there a point where you felt like we can ship this to a market version? Or can you walk us through just generally, what was your mindset as you took on a larger customer base? Yeah, I'm not sure if this answers specifically the question, but I think there is always a question of like, when do you actually go out of stealth mode, right? And when do you unveil yourself to the rest of the world with the hope that what you designed for three or four people will actually scale out. And there are basically two types of scenarios. There is a scenario that you actually see people completely not managing that aspect and they sort of launching or announcing their product way ahead of time and they're kind of declaring what they're going to do. There are certain reasons of why you would want to do that. I'm usually not a fan of that strategy. I'm a fan of trying to keep it as much as possible in stealth mode until you feel that you're able to deliver value into something that looks like an ICP that makes sense, like basically a customer profile that makes sense. So I think in June, maybe like April, June that year, when we started to see that you guys and Galaxy, I believe that Dynamis also at that point in time has started using the product and it was actually working in production. There were still like a lot of features that are missing and there were still bugs and instability issue and whatnot and that we were supposed to fix. I think we thought that, okay, this is the right point to actually launch it and tell the story. And I think what led us to believe more than anything else that it's the right point in time is that we were able to leverage Genesis and Galaxy as public references, right? That it wasn't me or Idan or RVP Marketing Elena talking about the product and how great it is. It was actually getting the client to explain the product and talk about the product. And I think what actually made our first launch so powerful was that we had this video where we recorded a bunch of folks from Galaxy, Ivan and Yoshi, and also Uri on that video. And they were just basically explaining what the product does, how it works and what it solved. And it was quite a successful launch. We had a lot of inbound once we went live with it. I actually remember that video. Yeah, you had Uri writing on a board, some sort of mathematical formula, and we teased him a lot for it in the office. But I see your point definitely that you basically let your customers speak on your behalf. And by then you also just had these very credible customers because as you previously mentioned, you had already kind of made sure that they were well positioned within the market. And so you could trust in the kind of weight and influence that it would have to have these customers be the marketing resource. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And by the way, I think we are still trying to practice these days. I think at that point, by the way, in the crypto space, what we've done from a marketing standpoint was very unique because back in 2018 or 19, actually, when we launched, the vast majority of the space was just broken promises, right? It was full of ICOs and companies that promised to build certain things, raised a bunch of money and talked with a lot of people and never delivered. And then when we came out of stealth mode, we were this company that no one had heard of before. We didn't raise an ICO and no one even knew that we exist. We were not in the space. And suddenly they're coming out and like, hey, there is actually a real product that you have clients that are talking about it. And from a branding standpoint for us, it did create a level of authenticity, which 
we are still trying very much to preserve today. And the reality is that we do have a lot of products that I think if other companies were executing on them, they were already launching and announcing it and talking about it like they exist. But I tend to wait with those announcements, even today with all the new things that we're building, until the point where we actually have people that are using it in live production environment and they can talk or at least like refer those products and position them in their voice for us. I think it creates a lot of credibility. You know, we spoke a lot, this whole discussion, you know, tactical sort of things, but to get a little bit more high level now, I mean, I think nowadays, Fireblocks, you guys have had tremendous success. When people think of successful crypto companies, obviously they think Coinbase, they think OpenSea, they also think Fireblocks. And it's been great to see you guys succeed in such a big way. But when you kind of look back at the last five, six years, the journey, what are some of those crucible moments that really were make it or break it decisions that you guys made for Fireblocks to be where it is today? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that there were definitely a lot of wise product decisions. I think there were also like a lot of random decisions that we made that positioned us well. For example, I think a lot of people view Fireblocks as kind of the gateway to DeFi. And it's definitely true that DeFi was a huge propellant for us back in 2021 in terms of client acquisition. And I think most people think that it's like an extremely strategic decision for us to do it. But the reality was that it was a combination of two factors. The first one was that in the beginning of 2020, I believe, Parify, that since then became one of our closest both clients and investors. But at that point in time, we were just introduced to them and they had some very innovative strategy in DeFi around compound and stable coins that honestly no one heard of back in the days. And they effectively convinced us to build this feature that you could supply and redeem out of compound in a click of a button. And when we were trying to validate the demand for it, besides them, honestly, no one really cared about it. There is even an article in the blog that one of our other customers, when we launched the feature, said, like, this is super cool. No one is going to use it. That was like basically early 10, 2020. Clearly, six months or seven months later, everybody were using more or less that. And then I think we had to take some view on expanding that capability around DeFi. And the trivial way of doing that was actually to go and partner with MetaMask, but for some commercial complications that didn't actually go through. So we had to basically front run their deal with someone else and to build our MetaMask or basically like a web web browser extension that our goal over there was just like, hey, let's make sure that we just basically launching it a week before we knew that they're going to launch it with someone else. And you're like, the rest is history. <laughs> but there was like anything extremely strategic in terms of the way that we were thinking about it. It was, I think, some weird combination of a random set of events and actually like a very strong mentality or culture that we have internally in terms of refuse to lose. So we didn't talk a lot about culture, but I think culture is important in order to build big companies. And we have very much of this culture of uh, refuse to lose. So that was, for example, one of those components. And then fast forward, if I think about what we've done in the last 18 months, which I think I'm quite proud of, I think most of the crypto space suffered from the extreme conditions, right, that we currently still have from a regulatory standpoint and post FTX compression and things like that. We kind of took like the long view of, okay, what this whole thing is going to be and what will be the use cases that will prevail over the longer period of time. And we started really focusing on them, not post FTX. We started focusing on them post Terra Luna, which was like basically six months before FTX. And I think that overall, this is something which is inherently strategic that I think nowadays 
plays out quite well and sets us apart where we are less susceptible, I would say, to the volatility of the crypto assets or specifically what's going on in the, I would say, like more the speculative side of the use cases, but rather than riding towards the more stable transformational use cases, this is where we strategically want to continue to invest. Earlier in the episode, you said something to the effect of there's a story and then there's reality. When you hear founders you know, speak, some of the great founders on YouTube or something like that on conferences, they'll always talk about the crucible moments as, hey, this was a strategic decision we made. But I think the reality is oftentimes it's luck, right? You just accidentally make that decision without understanding the ramifications, the context that it'll lead to. And at Reverie, we all love just business history, just studying it as a sociologist would study. It is one of those things that's really entertaining and just shows how much luck is part of this equation of building great businesses. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there is like huge amount of luck. You can do all the right things, <laughs> be unlucky, and you can do things that makes no sense and be extremely lucky. And, and I think luck is definitely one of the biggest factors. I think that realistically, a lot of entrepreneurs want to sound smart and intellectual, and then we tend to kind of retrospect and explain how smart we were and how everything was strategic. But I think just need to sometimes admit that you were lucky or you did uh, dumb things and specifically talk about the mistakes and the failures. And not only because I think it just makes you better in terms of how do you learn and fix and improve how you operate, but also it, it sort of like encourages younger people and entrepreneurs because it's like super hard. It's the hardest thing I think that someone can undertake. And I think that there is a lot of frustration. And when you think that like some of the big shots or people that you look at to are just like extremely successful and somewhat like superheroes, it makes things psychologically even tougher. And maybe just like to bring it to our space, I think that there is a culture in tech of doing it, I think that the manifest of it is, or the poster child of it is kind of Elon Musk, that everybody seeing him as a hero, and he's definitely unhuman, right, in terms of his capacity. You can agree or disagree with him in terms of how he operates and so on, but it's also like very clear that there are very few people that can actually operate in the capacity that we have. So you have a reference point that is unrealistic. But I think what was done, a big mistake that was done in our space is basically take SBF. And I think for a long period of time, a lot of the people in our space, and also like I had a bunch of common investors with FTX, they would always put him as a kind of reference point in terms of something that looked completely unhuman. And I would feel bad about it, you know, that I'm unable to work 20 hours a day and sleep on a mattress in the office because I have family and all this kind of stuff. So I want to make sure that like people that are at the beginning of their journey, they know that you have all those elements and you just need to kind of ride through this. Yeah, really well said. It's an interesting thing, right? Getting a little bit meta now, but for some CEOs, whether it's crypto founders or in traditional world, more traditional technology, I think you know, the ego becomes a huge part of it, right? The legacy that you're going to leave after you leave. And so and you could kind of see this, right? In, in the way they present themselves in their 20s, 30s, and 40s versus 50s, 60s, and 70s, where they try to change the way they're going to be perceived, change the way that they act, just because they understand that legacy is such a big component of it. And then there's other founders and CEOs who just refuse to play that game. They don't care about being perceived as this godlike figure. And they just continue being a human being publicly and privately. And one observation I think I've had is to be so obsessed with that perception, right? The weight of it, it really makes people have a lot of stress, of course, but really play the game for less time, right? Because if you're not really caring about it and all you're focused on is building the business and being a normal person, you could just play the game for longer. Yeah, I think so. I think also in our space, it was proven to be very dangerous. One would argue that it's both SBF. I think that Doe also created that narrative around himself 
and probably we can look at a few other folks. And I think on the flip side, you have people that I'll refer to Brian Armstrong from Coinbase. I think that he is one of the guys that super modest when you interact with him on a personal level, super down to earth. And he's been able to really focus on building Coinbase for over a decade, I think, at this point. So without, by the way, creating any catastrophic situations for themselves. So I really appreciate it. I mean, I think that he's one of the, him and the company are one of the best operators and builders in our industry. I'd love to double click on the culture element of Fireblocks that you touched on briefly a little while ago. And it sounds like you guys have an internal motto, refuse to lose, if I'm remembering correctly. What's that like in Fireblocks? And how have you managed to strengthen what I can only imagine is a big part of your own internal culture as you've been leading Fireblocks? And what's that been like as Fireblocks has scaled? Fireblocks today is a pretty big company. And so how do you deal with that on such a larger scale? Yeah, so let me start from the first part. So at some point, we basically put all five values, but I think out of those five, the three that are the most important to me is that refuse to lose being obsessed over our customers and operating with trust. So those are basically the top three that I have within the five that we have. So one would argue that we're actually having this argument right now internally if we should at least temporarily narrow it down from five to three. But there are a couple of elements here. First of all, I think that those values, they have to be authentic and they need to represent the core values that the founders or the top level management cherish and operates accordingly. They, they can be fake. It can be like I went to the Amazon website and I just basically ripped their values and put them as my values. You know, it really needs to come from how do you see the world, how you were raised by your parents, what are the experiences in life that basically shaped you to operate according to those values? Because I've been working with Zidane and Pavel for almost like two decades. We do share a lot of the same, I would say, history. And I think that those three values have been things that we, generally speaking, we don't need to actually even discuss them, right? We sort of agree. And even in probably if you independently worked with each one of us, that you would probably see us operating according to that, right? So I think that the alignment between the founders and then I think other people that we brought in that joined us early on, like whether it's our first set of R&D employees or Steven, uh, who is our nowadays uh, general manager of APAC and financial markets and, our, and Matt, our head of sales, and Yelena, former VP of marketing, we all had the same values and we shaped the company in that way. When you become 600 people a company, it's actually much more difficult and you need to start really paying attention because inherently at that scale, not every person that you're bringing in, they necessarily either understand or share the same values. And then I think this is what we are currently working with our chief people officer, Stuart, is really to figure out how do we reinforce those values across the organization. And there are, I would say, tactical or standard operating procedures that you implement to explain and provide examples of employees have done X or have done Y, right? So yeah, that's, I think, what we are doing today. But it has to be organic. So I think we've gone through most of the questions we had. We have a few grab bag questions. They're going to be completely random, Michael. Maybe fun for us to discuss. The first one is, what do you do in your free time? What do you do after you check out from the office? Go home, you know, play with my kids, uh, see my wife on a normal day. The hobbies that I have, I really like snowboarding. You know, that's usually useful in the winter times. I never thought you'd be a snowboarder. I took you for a skier. Uh, I'm snowboarding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty obsessed about it. I have an electric dirt bike. That's pretty fun as well. It's kind of, I would say, the summer version of snowboarding. Do a bunch of sport, read books. Extreme sport. Yeah, MPC during the week and Daredevil on the weekend, it sounds like. Yeah, something like that. One other grab bag question. So you probably see this a lot and you've done this by having a company that comes from Israel, 
selling to global customers, but really customers in the US. A lot of Israeli founders, they really struggle with that, right? If they have like an R&D team or an engineering team in Israel, in Tel Aviv, somewhere like that, and then their customers are in the US. For those founders who are listening, what sort of advice would you give them since you have done that yourself? Yeah, I've done it already twice. So it's honestly not the most trivial thing to do, but I think Israel over the last several decades, they sort of perfected the way in which it is being done. And I think there is a lot of knowledge in at least like the Israeli VC community of how to standardize that. The first thing that I think works quite well is that the CEO or the chief product officer at the minimum, they need to move to the US or wherever the market is, right? Like Israel, I think people, especially those days, they don't realize how small that country is. So Israel is never a market, right? It's like a super small country with six, eight million people over there. It's not an addressable market for anything. So the CEO has to move to the target market, which is usually the United States. And in those cases, it's pretty useful to have a, your technical founders, whether it's the, again, usually the CTO or the VP R&D or whoever is in charge of building the product being over there. I think that also with my previous company about a decade ago, it was more popular for people to move to the West Coast. And now it's more popular to move into the East Coast. And I think East Coast is order of magnitude easier from both time zone perspective and also commute back and forth to Israel. So yeah, that's how the more standardized and tactical things that are being done and it usually works. I think it's kind of pattern and most of the successful Israeli companies that have been working in the last couple of years have mostly followed that. I think post-COVID, some of the requirements have been a bit more relaxed because people are more open to operate via Zoom. But I still, sorry, I'm like a bit old school, but I still believe that meeting in person and, you know, as Carl mentioned earlier, showing up once a week in the office of your early clients is priceless. So I'm not sure you can actually replace it with a Zoom. Michael, I think this has been a really great conversation. We've covered a lot of different ground today from tactics of scaling fireblocks, some of the longer term strategy and design choices, and just some of the other stories along the way. So yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Oh, thanks, guys.